A quick note before we get started. This podcast episode has been corrected since it was originally published and updated to include comments from Nelson Management in the second half. In western China, there is a vast region of desert and mountains called Xinjiang. It covers about a fifth of the country's landmass. In ancient times, it was a critical intersection on the Silk Road. Today, it's home to a large population of Chinese Muslims known as Uyghurs. Uyghurs are a Turkic Muslim people who live in Central Asia. They have a very rich culture and history. They have been living in their homeland for hundreds of years. Omer Kanat is a Uyghur rights advocate who was born in this region. He says that while his people are Chinese citizens, they are outsiders. We are very different. We speak a different language. We have a different religion. We have different culture. We have different uh, traditions. And China's government sees these differences as a critical threat to national unity. They want to control or even expel the Uyghurs from their home, especially from the key city of Kashgar. There, the Communist Party has instituted a new kind of government by surveillance. This is now a police state. There are cameras everywhere, every corner of the city. There are checkpoints every hundred yards. Every movement of the Uyghurs monitored by most advanced surveillance technologies. And tell me a little bit about the technology that exists in and around the home. They put scanners in front of the door of the Uyghurs. So the Chinese authorities know how long you are out of the house. There are also cameras in their restrooms, restrooms. So there is no place for no place. Uyghurs no. to go no, where no, the Chinese no. government isn't watching or listening to them. They can't even go to the bathroom. You are being watched, you are being followed everywhere. You don't have any place to escape from the Chinese authorities monitoring. Now, Omer says his people are facing a new threat in the region, facial recognition technology. Facial recognition gave all information about you, who you are, about your backgrounds, you know. Uh, you are in uh, prison because of this technology, because you are being recognized everywhere you go. In the last few months, there has been a lot written about China's surveillance and how it's being used to brutal effect to watch, intimidate, and terrorize the Muslim Uyghur population. It's provoked a lot of outrage, and it's been broadly condemned by Americans as a moral horror show, an atrocity that realizes our worst fears. A 1984 government with 2019 technology. For many Americans, this must seem like a foreign dystopia, far, far away from our lives. Cameras in houses, in lobbies, on buildings, in supermarkets, and parking lots. But what if this reality isn't so distant? I mean, we see what's going on in Brooklyn. Once I walk out my house, on the elevator, in the lobby, in between the buildings, in the supermarket, in the parking lot, I can go nowhere and not be watched. A tale of two surveillance states. For The Atlantic, I'm Derek Thompson. This is Crazy Genius.
what we know from the city of Kashgar and the broader region is horrifying. Beyond the oppressive surveillance, there are reports of torture in detention centers that collectively hold more than one million Uyghurs. Why is China doing this? Well, the official reason is that there is a problem of terrorism and extremism in the region. I think the real reason is that the Chinese government uh, wants to impose strengthened social control in that region. Maya Wong works for Human Rights Watch, where she researches China. She's watched as they've tightened their grip on the Xinjiang region. But for years, the specifics of China's methods have been a mystery. There is really no reliable images or videos coming out from that region, from the detention facilities, in a world where we are very connected with smartphones. I think the government has done an amazing job controlling that flow of information. But this year, a breakthrough. Human Rights Watch cleverly built a special app that allowed them to, essentially, surveil China's surveillance system. That is unprecedented, that we are able to look inside the heart of China's mass surveillance capital, basically. So this report is the most detailed look yet at China's surveillance state? I would say so. And what did you find? So we found that the authorities are monitoring everyone, tracking everyone's use of electricity, their access to gas station, tracking the movement of phones, ID cards, and their vehicles. It is also telling the government officials to pay more attention to people who uh, have stopped using smartphones recently, or who have acquired a new phone number, who speak to people abroad, who are related to people who are speaking to people abroad. In China, even non-Uyghurs are subjected to a web of surveillance. Maya says this surveillance has layers. At the very bottom of the design of the mass surveillance systems is the requirement that everyone in China has to have a national ID card with your national ID number that is unique to everyone. And then the authorities have required that people, in order to access public services, such as having access to your mobile phone or your internet, uh, and to travel on trains and planes and buses, long distance buses, you must present your ID card. The next layer, cameras lots and lots of cameras. But video is only skin deep. And when it comes to the Uyghurs of Xinjiang, that's not deep enough for the Chinese government. The next layer of the mass surveillance infrastructure is a collection of biometrics. The authorities in Xinjiang have required people uh, between the age of 12 and 65 to submit their iris scan, their fingerprints, a picture of their face, and then also DNA. Some of those also have their voice samples collected. So the collection of these biometrics are inputted into a large national database that can be searched. And finally, on top of all the biometric systems, you have development of artificial intelligence, like facial recognition system, voice recognition system that enables these systems to automatically identify people when they walk through, for example, uh, a checkpoint or in a crowd. Can you walk me through how this technology would work in a typical day of a Uyghur in Kashgar? Step by step, how is someone coming into contact with these layers of technology? 
So uh, a Turkic Muslim will wake up and the first thought is that they have to be careful. When they walk out of their compound, their IDs are checked, their face may be scanned, and then their information is taken down. And when they go to the market, they have to go to another checkpoint. These checkpoints, although they look like they're just like normal checkpoints in the airport, in our report, we found that these checkpoints are actually kind of vacuuming people's information, not only doing facial recognition and checking their ID, but also collecting people's MAC address and their unique identifier of their phone or electronic devices. As people walk through these places without knowledge or consent, these identifying information from the electronic devices are being taken. These checkpoints are a grotesque security theater, a cross between George Orwell and Franz Kafka. We have some interviewees who said one day the alarm made a a flash and they were already feeling very scared. The police come, take them to the police station and explain that their names have been inputted into the computer system. And the interviewee said, like, what do I do about this? I'm on the system and I don't know why I'm on, on the system. And the police officer told him, well, you should just stay home. Don't go to any public places. Don't go to the supermarket. Your name is on the system. Nothing we can do about that. This isn't just about controlling the Uyghurs. It's about using them, like guinea pigs in a lab. China wants to be a leader in facial recognition. It treats Xinjiang as an incubator for this technology, without any consideration of morality or decency. The use of facial recognition is a neutral technology. It depends on how it is used. It is used in a very abusive, intrusive manner in China because there is no privacy law that protects people from state surveillance. The government and the police does what it wishes to. So it can just get your information and integrate them across the board, your health data, your bank data, and link that to your ID number and track you everywhere. So it's about how that is used in China that is particularly problematic. Maya and Omer told me terrifying stories about China's surveillance. And many of these tools, like facial recognition, are just beginning to roll out here in the U.S. So far, many Americans don't seem too concerned about it. There's facial recognition tech on our phones, at the airport. It's even a novelty at some restaurants where you can pay by smiling into a camera. Maybe you find that intriguing. Maybe you find it creepy. Either way, it seems a far cry from Xinjiang. But then, in the middle of my research for this show, I came across an alarming article in Gothamist, the local New York City website. It told an eerily familiar story. We may lose our homes because of this facial recognition technology. Like, it's scary. You're thinking about what someone is saying about you consistently throughout the building because you know you're being watched. The surveillance state in our own backyard. We'll be right back. Atlantic Plaza Towers is a two-building apartment complex in Brooklyn's Ocean Hill neighborhood. 
Each tower is 24 stories tall, red brick all the way up, with several hundred residents. And on a crisp, clear day this spring, I took the subway out to Brooklyn to meet three people who live there. My name is Trené Moran. Um, my son and I live in 216 Rockaway Atlantic Towers, and I've been there for 27 years. Um, Fabian Rogers, uh, 249 Thomas Boylan. Um, Anita Booker. I have one daughter, living in Atlantic Towers for 24 years in 249. Tell me a little bit about the complex itself. What is the community like? My great-grandmother was the first of my family to move into that building, and it was her and her three children. And then my grandmother kept her children there, and my mom kept her children there. So at least in 216, I feel like it's a tight-knit community. It's literally a building full of families that have been there since the 70s. Seeing people trying to break that down is, like, really disheartening. The breakdown started in 2006. That's when a new management company bought the building, Nelson Management. They invested millions of dollars in new roofs, new windows, and new cameras. Lots and lots of cameras. Once I walk on my house, on the elevator, in the lobby, in between the buildings, in the supermarket, in the parking lot, I can go nowhere and not be watched. People are really definitely afraid of these cameras all around them. There's a pressure and anxiety that comes behind seeing these cameras when you walk out of your building and knowing that they're watching you. Every time you tap that key fob, you know a photo of your face is popping up in the management office along with video to go with it. It makes me anxious. It makes me nervous. I don't like it. It's almost like a panopticon complex where they have every nook and cranny of the main lobbies covered. If you make your way through the hallway to the elevator lobby, there's going to be security cameras that have 360 vision. So basically, there's not one inch nook or cranny except the staircases that's not looked after. Does it change your behavior at all? Does it change the way you behave, you act in your around your own home? Of course. I mean, you have to move in certain ways where you're not bringing attention to your apartment. I'm on the elevator and having a good day. I have to be thoughtful about my little jig that I do in the elevator because you're watching me do my little jig in the elevator and I'm just having a good day trying to go home. And it's like, I know somebody is watching me having a good laugh because, hey, look at her dancing in the elevator. There's no privacy. All of this, the security cameras outside, the 360 cameras in the lobby, the cameras in the elevators, in the halls, that was bad enough. Then things got worse. The real trouble started in the fall of 2018. Residents like Anita Booker found a letter in their mailbox. It was from their landlord. Nelson Management wanted to beef up lobby security with the latest tool in the surveillor's toolbox facial recognition. I received the packet. When I opened up the packet, it was just a questionnaire and it asked at the bottom to give your comments whether you was in favor of it or not. I wasn't in favor. I left a comment because it's an invasion of the privacy. But something was wrong. Anita started asking around and many of her neighbors said they never received any notice about facial recognition technology. They didn't even know what she was talking about. So one day, Anita and a small group of people went down to the lobby. We got a group together. We met in the lobby with the tenants to find out if everybody received the package, if they knew about the package. As their neighbors came in and out of the building, they asked them, have you heard about this new thing Nelson Management wants to install? Did you even get a letter? 
Do you even know what facial recognition technology is? That's how when we found out, the majority of the people never received it. Anita and her neighbors were furious. Nelson management wasn't happy either, and they were watching. Next thing I know, my husband called me and told me, you got a letter in the mail with your picture on it, a threatening letter. It was dated October. Anita brought the letter with her. It was from the landlord. She read it to me. Dear residents, I received a security report dated October 20th, 2018, that at 10.30 a.m., you were in the lobby stopping residents requesting they do something for you. Let me make something clear. This is not your building. You are a resident of our building. You signed a lease in which you agreed to comply with certain policies and procedures, so please comply. Then we got pictures along with it, with our names and apartments. Anita handed me a photograph printed on 8.5 by 11-inch paper. You can tell it was taken from a camera perched in the corner of the lobby. The photo shows nothing out of the ordinary, just a few people talking in a lobby. And over their heads, in black pen, is written each person's apartment number. The implicit message, don't protest or else. Now, you might be wondering, what the hell is Nelson Management doing here? Nelson Management did not respond to requests for comment before publication. In an email on Thursday, May 30th, a spokesperson for the landlord sent a statement. Quote, Nelson Management Group prioritizes identifying and implementing cutting-edge technology at all properties to create a safer environment for tenants and to provide the highest quality housing in the rent-stabilized market. The sole goal of implementing this proposed technology is to advance that priority and support the safety and security of residents. End quote. But when the tenants got their chance to sit down with the landlord, they say they didn't get any clear answers. He was pitching the technology as though the tenants should be happy that we should have this. The tenants should be grateful that we should have this. I asked him several times in this meeting, how would this tech actually be beneficial to us? Like, would it be beneficial to us for security purposes? They left the meeting with no explanation, but they came up with their own theory. The new surveillance tech wasn't about protecting them. It was about getting rid of them, about intimidating the current residents, scaring them away, clearing space for another group, a group that would look very different from Anita, Fabian, and Trine. I mean, we see what's going on in Brooklyn. We see what's happening in Bushwick. We see what's going on, like, everywhere. We know we're next. We know that the buildings don't have our best interests at heart because we can't support that dream of management, which is to have $2,500 rent, $3,000 rent. So I think he wants a new look for the building, and that look does not look brown or any color like us. It doesn't look like a family member of mine. Nelson management challenged that characterization, saying that resident turnover rate has been declining. But there are other concerns. The tenants in these two buildings are being exploited for their data. Mona Patel is a staff attorney with the Tenants' Rights Coalition of Brooklyn Legal Services. They're now representing the residents of Atlantic Plaza. This is a new technology that hasn't been, as far as we know, because there's no information out there saying otherwise, that it hasn't been tested anywhere else. 
It has some intestine in a residential complex for sure. And we haven't seen any validation studies proving that it will accurately work for people of color. It almost feels like the tenants are the study. Their biometric data is going to be used to not just test the system to see how accurate it is, but to improve the system because that's how algorithms work. We're currently dealing with the possibility of having to be the guinea pigs to deal with the security technology and the ramifications of that. Like, I'm not on parole. I'm not on house arrest. I don't have a collar on my neck or my ankles. Like, don't try to treat me like I'm an inmate, you know? I'm paying for an apartment. You wouldn't do this to anyone inside Soho. You wouldn't do this to anyone in the Upper East Side. You wouldn't do this to anyone in Harlem. You wouldn't do this to anybody within other gentrified communities. So why do this to me? Like... Again, it just makes me feel as though the affordable housing thing is a stigma and we're more of a burden or a liability to deal with than an asset because of what we're paying for in rent. It's like technological research slavery, kind of, because we have no say-so. We are being threatened with this. We may lose our homes because of this facial recognition technology. Like... It's scary. It's like we're working for free while at work because our biometric data is being played with and messed around with and they're doing all kinds of who knows. You're not even saying thank you to me for allowing you to use my biometric data that I never even gave you permission to use in the first place. It's like, where do we stand in that? It makes no sense. In his comment to The Atlantic, Nelson management denied claims that they were pursuing facial recognition technology for data harvesting. One of the uncomfortable hallmarks of the modern surveillance state isn't quite security theater. It's more like consent theater. Consent theater means, of course we can sell your smartphone data to organizations you'd never support. You pressed that OK button one time. Consent theater means, of course we can collect your biometric data when you come home with the groceries. We sent you a letter about it. Or at least we meant to. Consent theater means we can have any information about you that we want. After all, you signed the lease. We live in an information age. We live in a data age where data is power. Data is money. And data is capital. So if you can have that, you can essentially have the whole core of a person and have access to all the capital that comes with that person. And for a long time, people have had the right to be offline terminals for their whole life. They've had the right to their own disconnection, where the closest you can get to me is my wallet, the closest you can get to me is my ID, the closest you can get to me is my passport, the closest you can get to me is the information I give you. It's really scary. It's come down to stealing our identity, the privacy, I'm afraid of it because I don't have nothing to hide, but it's my privacy. Maya Wong from Human Rights Watch told me that nothing in China is simple. But from the Muslim Uyghur perspective, what's happening to them must feel awfully clear and blunt. In a region undergoing massive demographic shifts, residents are being surveilled without their permission with nascent technology subjected to an organized effort to frighten them, to change their behavior, and ultimately, to get rid of them. The plight of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang might feel very far away. But if we pretend it is a problem for another people in another world, 
we fail to see the truth under our noses. Xinjiang's story is not unique. It could also be about much of the world. It's a question about whether or not we as human beings will have much freedom in this kind of surveillance uh, state. My major concern, though, over everything else is who has access to the information and how it's going to be used. And in my research in China, they have this facial recognition technology and they are using it to target communities of Muslim people. Sounds very similar to Brooklyn and gentrification. It does not work in our favor at all. Like, everyone should be yelling about this. Nelson management is not Beijing. And Atlantic Towers is not Xinjiang. But vile surveillance is vile surveillance, wherever it occurs. This is just one story of one apartment complex in one city. But it holds critical lessons for us as we grapple with the rise of facial recognition and surveillance technology. Citizens have a right to make informed choices about participating in this brave new world of biometric data. In New York City and beyond, the project of protecting the world from our own inventions is a project that begins at home. Crazy Genius was produced by Patricia Jacob and Jesse Brenneman, with help from Kevin Townsend on fact-checking. David Herman is our engineer. Breakmaster Cylinder composed our theme song and all the music in this episode. Special thanks to Martin Gurry and Karen Cornblue. Catherine Wells is the executive producer of Atlantic Podcasts. Adrian LaFrance is our executive editor. If you like what you heard, please rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts. I'm Derek Thompson. See you next week. <laughs>